This podcast introduces our listeners to three female scientists with a passion for work in earth and ocean science. The podcast provides a wide range of topics in geographic locations, interviewing a Spanish oceanographer from the island of Majorca in the Mediterranean Sea, an expert in marine mammal strandings from the coast of Texas, and a scientist with a passion for meteorology and climate change from the U.S. Great Lakes region. Along the way, we hear the backstory about how these three ladies became interested in science and what kind of projects they're working on today. They all provide perspective about what it's like to work in earth and ocean science as a woman today. Before we get to the interviews, we wanted to ask our listeners to please subscribe to this podcast. Your subscription helps us mark professional progress, which helps us forge partnerships moving forward and guarantees many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast. Now let's get to these three exciting interviews. I recorded the first interview live in Central Florida as part of the EVAN conference. The day after the conference, several of us went to a local park where I recorded an interview with Marta Marcos. In this park setting, we sometimes hear the sounds of children playing in the background. Marta Marcos is an associate professor at the University of the Balearic Islands, located in Majorca in the Western Mediterranean Sea, and also a researcher at the Mediterranean Institute for Advanced Studies. She has also worked at the University of La Rochelle in France and at the National Oceanography Center in the UK as a postdoctoral researcher and at the University of York in the UK as a visiting scientist. During the last 20 years, she has worked to improve our knowledge of ocean climate. In particular, she is an expert on sea level variability, interested in sea level changes from minutes to centuries, and especially those that are linked to anthropogenic climate change and on coastal impacts. Marta, great to have you on the GeoTrek podcast. I'm with Marta, who gave an amazing presentation. I really enjoyed meeting you. Could you please introduce yourself and share like where you work? Hi, Hal. Yeah, that was very nice. Um, I am Marta Marcos. Uh, I am a researcher and associate professor at the University of the Balearic Islands. So we are based in Mallorca, Eastern Spain, Western Mediterranean, where I work at the Mediterranean Institute for Advanced Studies. This is a, a joint institution between the university and the research council. So I work with undergraduates, with graduate students, but also with researchers that have nothing to do with the university. <laughs> Marta, when you say you're in Majorca, I mean, I felt like I know have a pretty good idea of geography. I didn't know where that is. Where is Majorca? Majorca is an island, a Spanish island located in the Western Mediterranean. It's the biggest of the Balearic Islands, and uh, the capital city of the Balearic is there, is Palma. It's really a beautiful, beautiful place, clear waters, wow. very touristic and very well known in Europe. You so said the water's great for swimming, yeah? You, it you is, like it is. In the summer, in the winter, <laughs> we get cold winters. And you said you also have some, some high mountains too, right? Yeah, the, the northern side of the island, uh, it's, it's hilly and our highest mountain is 1,500 meters high. Yeah, so it sounds like a great place to, to live and work and do research. It's a great environment. Yeah, that's why we get about 15 million tourists every year. Wow, so a lot come down from Europe especially, right? Yeah, and from America too. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's great. It sounds like a beautiful place one day. I hope that I can visit. So yeah. let's talk. You're doing uh, really all this amazing science. Can we go back to your childhood or even through when you were a teenager? Did you picture that you'll be a scientist one day? I mean, what were your interests when you were younger and, and growing oh, yeah. up? Yes, I, I've always seen myself as a scientist. When I was a teenager, I was more interested in, in uh, paleo stuff, you know, dinosaurs, and I wanted to become a dinosaur hunter. <laughs> but then I was, I was good at maths and physics, so I decided to go to pursue physics as an undergraduate. And um, yeah, I was also interested in cosmology. As most of the physics students, I wanted to become an astronomer. That's, you know, the classical physical, physics student, physics nerd that we so call. So you were really <laughs> interested and good at probably math and physics, yeah, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, that's really interesting. And so um, when you went into university, what did you study? Well, in physics, it's quite general. So we do lots of maths, lots of general physics, but also electromagnetism, quantum physics, nuclear physics. But then um, we have some optional subjects as well. And one of those was oceanography. 
So I decided, okay, let's let's try oceanography. I was also interested in atmospheric sciences, so why not? And then I discovered the very basic of oceanography. I had a great teacher at that time. And where was that? Where were these university studies? Where where were you? It's, where did you grow up? I grew up in Palma, in a neighborhood near Palma, in in Mallorca. Okay, so you grew up in Mallorca, yeah. and then you also went to university there. Yeah, exactly. Okay, the same university, which is where I work now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so, and then you were doing university studies there. W- was it studies in oceanography? No, it was in in physics. In physics, okay. And then uh, I I I was inter- I became interested in the last year. I became interested in oceanography. So I decided to do a PhD in oceanography in ocean science. And then I moved to this Mediterranean Institute for Advanced Studies, and I had my PhD there, which is also based in Mallorca. Oh, great. So you were able to, where you grew up there, even just mm-hmm. do all of this education, exactly. get involved with oceanography, exactly. and then um, go right through it and do a PhD. Yeah? Exactly. On meteor tsunamis. Yeah. I had a PhD on yeah, meteorological tsunamis because it's a, it's a phenomenon that we have in the Balearic Islands. Uh, so we have measurements and we were trying to understand which, is the me- which are the mechanisms, because there are more yeah. than one mechanism that generate this kind of very high frequency sea level oscillations that can be hazardous and in some occasions. Yeah, Marta, could you explain a little bit what is a meteorological tsunami? What, is, what does yes, that mean? Yes, of course. It's not a concept that is very easy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like a tsunami wave in the ocean, but the origin is not seismic or volcanic. It's, um, it's of atmospheric origin, like a front or high frequency gravity waves in the atmosphere. Essentially, they hit the ocean like very fast and the ocean responds generating a wave that uh, it's very similar to a tsunami wave. Actually, it's mathematically is described in exactly the same, in the same way. It's not as energetic as a tsunami wave, but it can reach some places in the coast that resonate and amplify those waves and can destroy boats and cause some flooding as well. Yeah, so in general, maybe not the enormous magnitude we would see from like a seismic tsunami in Not Japan or something big. like that but but a smaller magnitude but but a problem there if, even in the Mediterranean right it's a problem and the magnitude is generally smaller but sometimes they can reach two or three meters high right so that can really start to inundate some uh, yeah. go across roads and even flood some buildings very particular places because when they reach the high amplitude is because there is um, a coastal resonance so a harbor for example with a very particular shape which resonates at the frequency of the wave of the meteor tsunami and it amplifies it 10, 20 times. So you can have two nearby harbors and one is not seeing big amplitude waves and in the other you can have like two meter waves. So depending um, on the shape and maybe the water depth, things exactly, like that, exactly. you, you can have a very ideal situation where exactly. one harbor could get a big meteorological mm-hmm. tsunami and the other one doesn't. Yeah, there are hot so spots. It, it can be quite localized, huh? It is localized, very localized. We have one of these hot spots in the Mediterranean, in Menorca Island, and there is another in Croatia, but there are also others in Japan, for example. And it's very funny because in every place, this has happened for, for centuries, so in every place they have like a local name, but it's exactly the same phenomenon. Um, I've heard of something called a seish, is that right? Is that, pr- seish, is seish. that similar to a meteorological tsunami? Seish is the, um, is the resonance, the typical resonance of every harbor and bay. And it becomes a meteor tsunami when it is amplified. Oh, I see. So the seish is kind of the process, but then when you amplify this and exactly. get the water, now yeah. you have a tsunami. Yeah. 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 Um, because every coastal point is getting some kind of forcing of waves and yeah. and and storm surges all the time. If you put an instrument there and then you record a time series, the time series is always oscillating around the main frequencies of of oscillation that depends on the shape, on the water depth, and and on the morphological characteristic of the Yeah, area. that's really interesting and interesting as well because sometimes I know um, I live on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Usually when people think of coastal flooding, they think more of hurricanes and tropical systems. Mm-hmm. But um, from what I understand, even in the wintertime with fronts, if you get an onshore wind in certain ways, you can start to get uh, flooding from, I think, um, it's maybe related with a meteorological tsunami. It can be, yes. Yeah, so you, you just need maybe an onshore wind blowing in the right direction. And again, depending on the coastal shape and profile, it can amplify or make it higher, yeah? Actually, more than wind, is more related to um, atmospheric pressure oscillations. Oh, okay. A front for example, a change, yeah, uh, sharp change, in change in pressure or um, gravity waves in the atmosphere 
that change very quickly and they are forcing the ocean more than the winds. The winds. So it's not just do, the wind stress. No, yeah. yeah, the winds they just pile up the water and yeah. they can cause another problems. But the meteor tsunami is a it's a traveling wave. I see. It's a traveling wave, and this yeah. would be more related with like a low pressure system or, exactly, or yeah. a pressure dropping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. And we had a few talks, I think, at this conference that talked about. I think Zonka's uh, talk yes. as well talked about these different. There are a lot of different things that can happen to cause coastal flooding. <laughs> Some of them are more obvious than others, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, then beyond your PhD, I mean, what, what became your interest in research and um, in your professional life? Well, you know, during my PhD, I was working a lot on very high frequency sea level oscillations. And then uh, step by step, I was looking at the lower frequencies. So became interested in changes from year to year. And then, of course, you go and see the lower frequencies, decadal variability, interannual um, centennial variability links to climate change so I decided to move to the other side of the spectrum and I applied for a postdoc at that time after my PhD I moved to France to look at different sources of data and to look at decadal variability in sea level move away from the Mediterranean and from my comfort zone so I spent a year in, in the University of La Rochelle in France working with satellite altimetry data and tide gauge data and trying to infer both vertical and motion from the two sources of data and also the decadal variability in sea level. And when you say um, low frequency, so sometimes uh, an actual storm could cause a flood in uh, one day, in an afternoon. That, that's mm -hmm. kind of a high frequency, it's moving in quickly, mm -hmm. right? But these low frequency floods, you're talking about maybe um, oscillations or changes in ocean level that could last for months or years, right? Exactly, yeah. Different kind of forcing, different kind of mechanisms, slower, but also very relevant for um, for coastal sciences. So, would it, I mean, we we know there's a lot in the news about global sea level rise from mm -hmm. with climate change. So, as we have a warmer climate and a warmer ocean, mm -hmm. uh, warm water takes up more room than cooler water, right? So, we have thermal expansion of the oceans. Yeah. We have a lot of ice, uh, land-based ice melting that's putting mm -hmm. more volume of water into the oceans. So, we know in general oceans are rising. But if we start to look, say, at a basin, like say the a certain part of the Atlantic Ocean or the Mediterranean, can you see certain areas maybe rising faster than others? I mean, do you see that in the, in yeah, the data? Yeah, definitely you see that. The, the, the altimetry uh, observations are a wealth of information and you can see the differences between regions very clearly. The differences at the global scale, they are mostly related to different heat uptake by the ocean. For example, in the Pacific, Western Pacific, what is the so-called warm pool in the Pacific, it's taking up more heat than other areas, so it's heating uh, faster and sea level is rising faster or has been rising faster for a couple of decades over there. So it is, it is very heterogeneous. The sea level is rising everywhere, but not at the same rate. We're back in the park here at Kelly Park uh, at the Springs. We just uh, did this interview with, with Marta. We're hanging out with our, our friend Professor Ivan Haig as well. And, um, a very interesting question came up just as far as your path in the sciences as a woman. Do you feel like that's been uh, more difficult as a woman or not necessarily? I mean, what are some things to think about th that for our, our young uh, female scientists? Yeah, well, I know that discrimination exists, of course. Um, you just have to look at the numbers. I haven't felt myself uh, strong or even discrimination. I, I don't have that, that feeling. I've been lucky enough to work with very nice people um, who made me feel um, equally valuable. Of course, there have been occasions um, in which I have the feeling that I haven't been taken as serious as a male colleague. But in general, in general, no, it has been it has been fine. I mean, it's something that any woman can do. For me, the big game changer is maternity, when you have kids. Um, in in my case, uh, after maternity leave, which in Spain is about four or five months, uh, with my husband we have been co-responsible at home, so we share 50% with children, with home tasks and everything, and and this is this is the ideal situation, I guess. This is the maximum I can get, right? But then I'm in a situation that I have to compete with male colleagues. And we know that if someone in the couple reduces their workload or takes a lift, is 95% of the cases is the woman. So we are not anymore in the same situation in general. I compete with male colleagues who have more freedom than me to travel, more time to work, even if they don't want to. Not all of them, of course, but um, there are many cases like that. So in that case, most women, I would say most women are in disadvantage with 
respect to to their male colleagues. It sounds like you're saying that most of the leave for um, maternity, paternity, more of that is taken from the women, and maybe yes. more time to raise the family is required from the woman. In general, that A- is the case. In general, yes. and then, but you're still competing with the, yeah. your male colleagues as far as um, maybe conference talks and published papers and grants yeah, and things like that. Exactly, you have less time for work. Yeah, do you feel in a sense it puts more pressure where maybe you have less time to do the work but you still have to sometimes perform at that same level? Uh, yeah, you are expected to perform at the same level but <laughs> then you have kids and then everything changes, okay? So priorities also change. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, it, it was encouraging at this conference to see people from all these different countries, to see mm-hmm. a good mix of men and women and um, just different races. That You know, the diversity yeah. I thought was great and um, I... I appreciate this perspective, I think, especially for female scientists coming up. Yeah, I hope in the future we are we are uh, not a minority anymore. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Marta, for sharing that. And thank you for coming on the podcast. <laughs> thank you. When I returned home to Galveston from the EVEN conference, I participated in the kickoff event for a local science lecture series titled Women in Coastal Science, organized by the Galveston Park Board of Trustees. The first of these six science lectures featured the work of Sarah Piwitz. Sarah is the stranding biologist at the Texas Marine Mammal Stranding Network, a nonprofit that aims to further the understanding and conservation of marine mammals through rescue and rehabilitation research, and education. She is broadly interested in marine mammal stranding trends, conservation biology, behavioral ecology, and the effects of human activity in coastal marine mammal habitats. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. We met at the kickoff to the lecture series here in Galveston called Women in Coastal Science. I thought you did an amazing job. It was great to hear about all your research and your passion for stranded mammals. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a it was a fun time for me, for sure, to get to share with the community a bit. And um, definitely nice to meet you. Thanks so much for inviting me here today. Oh, for sure. You know, your research is so well established here on the island. And a lot of people, I think, are not aware of what's going on in our backyard. So that was one of the really cool things about your presentation. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, Sarah, share with us a little bit about how did you get this passion for working in coastal science and with stranded mammals? I mean, was that something that you had a passion about from when you were a little girl or did that, did that develop more as an adult? Like, what's the backstory there? Yeah, you know, I think I think it's different for everyone, of course. But for me, it did start at a, at a very young age. I may not have had, you know, a, a specific finite idea of what that would look like, but I definitely from a very young age um, really loved watching animals, kind of uh, natural behaviors, how they interacted with each other, with us, uh, with their environment. So I definitely loved uh, watching animals as a, as a youngster. And I was also really intrigued by the ocean. So I grew up in Houston, Texas, close to the coast. And so a lot of really good memories were instilled in me at a, at a young age of going to the coast and, and spending time with family um, by the ocean and just getting to see nature up close and personal. So I, I did always have a, a, a great interest and a great appreciation for, I think, being out in nature. Sure. So you were kind of used to coming here to the upper Texas coast. Probably, I know a lot of kids from Houston come down, especially in the summertime. Was it just a fascinating environment for you to kind of play in the, in the golf? Yeah, definitely. And um, just never really knowing what you were going to see, what you were going to, we have so much diversity in not only marine life, um, but even, uh, you know, plant life in Galveston. There's just so much going on here. Um, So it was kind of a new adventure every time we'd come, definitely. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, the the ocean, the Gulf, there's always a mystery with it, like you said. So it's a pretty exciting environment. So, you know, then transitioning into adult life, um, you know, what kind of work do you do today? Like, what are the kind of projects that you work on? What's most exciting for you in your research today? Yeah, so my kind of getting to where I am today, I have a, an academic background in brain biology, kind of broadly, and my specific PhD focus was looking at how human effects um, can really uh, affect behavior change in marine mammals, dolphins, whales. Um, And so that carried over really nicely to my work here at the Texas Marine Mammal Stranding Network, where a lot of what we do uh, does kind of incorporate looking at natural um, 
natural causes and natural impacts on marine mammals, but also human impacts. So a lot of the work we do here um, relates to stranding. So when live animals strand, uh, we do rescue and rehabilitation. We try and figure out what brought them to the beach. We also recover deceased animals that, that strand along the beach as well. And so a lot of the work there is involved in looking at potential disease. Again, what brought them to the beach, potential cause of death. And we can also look at just basic life history things, um, not just cause of death for the individual, but looking at overall population um, attributes. So uh, that's yeah. just a little-, <laughs> a little it, um, it sounds like there's obviously a big field work component, right? To going out there in the marine environment, say there's a stranding or a deceased animal, just kind of getting out there and getting to the animal and then um, either you know trying to rehabilitate it or, uh, I guess, work with the body in some way, huh? Yeah, there definitely is a huge field work component. And um, along with that, we always say for every hour we're in the field, though we're back <laughs> back in the lab or back at the computer um, for another two to three hours kind of following up. So, so we do both, um, but there is definitely a large field work component. We have uh, what we call our stranding season between December and, and March, essentially, where we have most of the strandings that we see each year come in around that time. Um, again, called our, our stranding season. So we always know every year we're likely going to be very busy in the field during that time. Um, and then we also do some wild population research, which is boat-based work looking at presumably healthy populations and how they're doing out in, in nature. So yes, field work is definitely a huge component, but that's also part of um, the interest, I think, for a lot of people who go into science. Uh, you know, we're drawn to the natural environment, so it's really kind of a nice balance to get to spend a lot of our working days um, in the field. Yeah, at GeoTrek, we really have a passion for getting out there, doing field science, documenting what's going on in the world. You know, we, we feel a laptop work or, or work inside is important, but at some point we do have to get out there and actually see what's going on. I'm curious, have you come across any science that, you know, points to reasons why we see more strandings in the wintertime? Yeah, so it's it's not unique to Texas. It, that kind of stranding season is seen in other areas, and um, it may be a, a little bit different timing than we see here. Uh, but a lot of that we think is attributed to um, we see a lot of neonates, newborn animals come in around that time. So it may um, it kind of correlates with strand um, calving season, and so it may just be natural um, death seen in in wildlife. You know, they don't have necessarily <laughs> hospitals to go to when they're birthing and having complications. So we think some of that may be attributed to um, just natural death in the birthing process. Um, it may be some of that coming off colder months. So we do see some older animals that that strand or die during that time. So that is that is one of the things we're interested in finding out more about. Um, but again, that's that's something that we see in other areas as well. Two winters ago, we had this massive freeze event in Texas. It was, you know, well known around the world for how cold it was for so long, all the way down to the coast. Did we see a, a spike in strandings during that time? We didn't. We definitely had our eyes, <laughs> our eyes wide open um, during that time, looking for any trends. But we we definitely didn't. Um, marine mammals, as opposed, well, I say marine mammals, dolphins and whales have really nice thick blubber layers, and so they may not be as affected as say sea turtles that are affected or even manatees. So manatees don't have that same blubber layer and they can be really affected by the cold. They, they have something called cold stress syndrome. And so that's not generally something that we see in dolphins and whales that have really good insulation. I see, so they're, they're insulated quite well from the, the colder, colder water. Um, you, you know, you had mentioned so many fascinating, fascinating things in your talk. Even I heard some people saying like they didn't realize dolphins could get sunburn until they heard you say it on your talk. So you, you really kind of help bring this to life and help us understand, you know, that these creatures in some ways, they're very different than humans. In some ways, they're maybe not as different as we think. Right. You know, and especially with a lot of the biological work that we do, the necropsies with the, with the dead animals, you really get an appreciation, like you said, for how similar they are to us. You know, they're, 
even their anatomy is very similar to ours. Their, their lungs are very similar to ours, but right, we, we had a, a very young calf strand about two years ago now, and um, he was on the beach for some time. We don't know how long, but he had these severe sunburns on his side just from being on the beach. And, you know, their, their cellular turnover rate is very fast. Their skin is very sensitive. And so, right, a lot of people may not realize that that's, that's something they may contend with. But for animals that are diving under the water for most of their life, they don't spend necessarily a ton of time at the, at the surface without that water protecting them. So, yeah, definitely... Definitely something um, new for a lot of people to hear. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're not probably used to being exposed to the air for long periods of time. But if they're stranded, they could have hours or maybe to days of being exposed to that sunshine. Right. And in the in the Texas heat, that's definitely something we're, we're familiar with. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Sarah, something I really appreciated during your talk as well, you had mentioned, you know, like for girls growing up that are interested in science, science, there's nothing genetically that would, you know, hold them back or reasons that they couldn't perform as well as boys. I really appreciated that. I have boy girl twins. And when, when they were like two years old and three years old, they used to fight constantly because they both wanted to play with the trucks and trains. And, um, and uh, one or two, people said, I think maybe it's time for Della to get into dolls and stuff. And I thought, hey, if she's interested in that, that's great. But I just always wanted my kids to live to their potential, be who they want to be, you know. So I really appreciated that you mentioned that because I, I think that's great to see girls and young women getting into science. You know, I, I just see a lot of curiosity in my own daughter. And I love the concept that she could kind of do whatever she wanted in science one day if she wanted to. Yeah, I love that. That's great that I didn't realize you had twins. And that's such a cool example of, of, yeah, sometimes I, I look at advertisements on TV and you definitely think there's this um, kind of a social construct almost built around how we um, advertise for different the different genders. Sure. And yeah, I think it's great that you're, you're encouraging her to <laughs> just follow what she is interested in, not necessarily what society thinks she should get interested in. So that's that's great. Sarah, for you as a woman in the sciences, have you ever felt like you faced any professional challenges that perhaps some of your male colleagues would not have faced? Is that something that you've ever sensed, you know, through both through your schooling and, and now professionally as well? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it's something I've thought a good amount about. And I will say I feel extremely fortunate that I really have had very little of that experience myself. Um, I have certainly had um, colleagues uh, and peers that I have watched go through through some of that. Um, but I, I think I was really lucky in terms of my, so my academic, my PhD advisor um, is this brilliant <laughs> researcher and really well known in his field, but he supported a lot of women PhD students and he always made it very clear that what we had to say was important, that we deserved a seat at the table, the table yeah. where decisions are made. Um, and he was always extremely inclusive. And so I think that I was very lucky in that respect. And it also instilled in me that um, for me that I do deserve those things. And then now I have a, a mentor here in my professional life who is a woman who is leading the organization and she is, um, at the forefront of, of a lot of things that are happening um, in stranding work and not only in the Gulf, but in, in, the, in the country. And so I think I've had these two really great role models. I, I will say one thing that I've seen kind of change a bit even over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, so when I first started as an undergrad, in, in my particular field, marine biology, we had a lot of women that were undergraduate students, um, and then you have, so you have a much higher proportion of women going through education, but you had a much higher percentage of males in the professorship roles, the, the fully tenured positions. And so I really have seen that shift where um, we see more of a balance. And I know Texas A&M Galveston, where I um, received my PhD is, is a great example of that. You have so many incredible women um, in these full professorship positions that are just really leading the way. And so I think that's one thing I have noticed just as a female, that kind of, that, that bit of shift, at least in my 
field of science. Yeah, it's really nice to see a, a nice mix throughout all different levels of academia there because, you know, if you just see males that are in the professorship positions, it kind of communicates that women don't belong there. But it's great to hear that it's uh, much more mixed. And I love that you have those those two examples, one a male and one a female that mentored you and, you know, really in, encouraged you to have a voice and for other women as well. That's a good reminder that, you know, this topic is important for both men and women, you know, uh, not just for women. So I was encouraged to see a bunch of other guys at the at the kickoff for the Women in Coastal Science here in Galveston. It, it looks like it's a six-part series, so I'm really excited. I think the next one's coming up in late June. So um, I, I'm excited to see what, yeah, what these other uh, seminars are about. But uh, Sarah, thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast. Best wishes to you. I, I'm really excited to follow more of your work now. Um, I, I like that it's not just theoretical, but, you know, very applied. You were sharing that there are ways that just like citizen scientists can be involved or if people are out on the coast on a Saturday afternoon and they find a stranded mammal, they can connect with you and with your team to help uh, that animal. That was so cool because it's like, this isn't just science, you know, at the university. This is like happening on the ground, on the coast, and it involves, you know, everybody in society. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, that's one of the main ways that we receive information about stranded animals is from the public beachgoers. And we've had a number of those those original beachgoers then become volunteers and have been working with us for decades. So yeah, it is, it is amazing to have community involvement. We couldn't do it without them. So yeah, Sarah, as we wrap up, if someone does find a stranded mammal, what can they do? Thanks so much for asking. Um, the first thing they should do if they're in Texas is call our stranding hotline. It's 24 hours. It's 1-800-9-MAMMAL. And there are stranding um, organizations all across the U.S., um, depending on where they are. But yep, just give us a call. Um, the main thing is not pushing the animal back to sea. Oftentimes people see a, a stranded animal on the beach. Of course, we know that that's not where they belong. But in Texas, these single strandings, they, they are likely either injured, they're um, very, very sick or potentially orphaned. And so pushing them back into the ocean, from our experience, they just end up stranding further down the beach, which prolongs potential suffering and then also um, just makes our rescue efforts harder when we're trying to relocate the animals. So yeah, not pushing yeah. them back, giving us a call. I remember that from your talk. And it, so just reach out, let y'all know what's going on and um, and you'll take it from there. You got it. Yep. Thank Thanks, you so Sarah. much. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast and, uh, and I'm excited to follow your research as you move ahead. Great. Well, thanks so much, Hal. Thanks. Bye. The final podcast interview for this series was with a woman with a passion for meteorology, climate change science, and engineering who studied meteorology with a few of my close friends along the Gulf Coast. Christina Murphy is a meteorologist by education and possesses over 20 years of water resources engineering experience. She has worked for both government and engineering consulting firms. She advocates for designing infrastructure to ensure continued function throughout the design life by addressing future conditions from the impacts of climate change. Christina, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Well, Chris, really appreciate you taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. I know we have some mutual friends. They've said you're really passionate about meteorology, climate change, water resources. Um, how did you get interested in this? Is this something that you were interested in all the time growing up? You know, I didn't realize when I was growing up that I was interested in it. I was just a kid. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland near the airport, um, I, you know, near Lake Erie. Um, we had this park system called the Metro Park. So we spent a lot of time, you know, playing in the woods, playing in the creeks, um, watching the airplanes land, you know, just staring at the clouds, just I'm sure like many, many kids do. Um, and I always loved nature and I always excelled in science and math at school. So um, until college, I didn't really know what my career path, what I wanted to do. And then I ended up in a chemical engineering program my first year. And of course realized this isn't for me, you know, um, but I really was still interested in, you know, environmental or something with water, but my school didn't have anything in that kind of program. So I ended up um, taking some other classes, taking some electives while I was trying to figure it out. And I ended up taking this aviation meteorology class. And my professor said to me, um, 
you know, there's careers and program college programs in this area if you're interested because you seem like it really just clicks with you. You you get it. You in the discussions, I can tell that you just understand it really well. And so I ended up looking into um, meteorology programs across the country. And um, the great thing for me was that all those science classes that I took in the engineering program actually were required for meteorology. So I, I ended up transferring to University of Louisiana at Monroe and basically had all my prereqs done and just got to take the fun classes, take all oh, the meteorology classes. Yeah, and I, I kind of blasted in and blasted out in, in two years and completed my degree. And of course, met a lot of great people that we, we know in common. And, um, and from there, um, you know, you don't know where your career is going to take you. Um, when we graduated, um, the federal government was in this hiring freeze. And we had been trained to go, you know, mainly to work for the National Weather Service or to work for the Federal Aviation Administration. And I really wanted to do that. And, you know, there were no jobs or there were very temporary jobs, you know, like a six month assignment or something. And so I, I was lucky that um, I ended up getting an offer here in Chicago at Chicago O'Hare um, for a FAA weather observer contract position. And so I said, you know, I'm 22 years old. I said, Chicago sounds like a lot of fun. Packed up my car, drove in, and um, and the rest is kind of history. I ended up um, staying here for over 20 years now. So Wow, that is so amazing. Okay, step by step, a little bit of commentary. First of all, I'm super jealous that you got to grow up in Cleveland. I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, and I would always see the lake effect snow out by Erie, Cleveland, and be so jealous because where I lived, we were east of the mountains. We never got the lake effect. What was that? Was that um, part of sparking your interest in weather? I mean, out there along the Great Lakes, you get some big snows in the wintertime. Definitely. We were right on that lake effect band, depending which way the wind was blowing. So that was that generated my uh, interest in meteorology as well, where I would watch these weather systems come off the lake and or, you know, you're down at your friend's house five miles away and it's it's pouring or it's snowing. You know, you, you know, you've got like five inches of snow there and you go home and there's nothing on the ground. And so I always wondered, like, why is this happening? What's going on here? Yeah, you know? Lake effect snow is so localized and it, it's amazing. I mean, you, you it, they're almost like mini thunderstorm clouds and a couple miles away, your friend's getting a blizzard and maybe you're not. Uh, I could see where that would spark interest in meteorology. I love in your story as well that, you know, you started in one aspect of science where you were doing chem -E. It didn't didn't really fit for you, but that you transitioned into something else. And just a reminder for a lot of our listeners, especially students and young adults, science is so nuanced. There's so many different strains of, of science, right? So it sounds like you wanted to try some things in science, but what you tried initially wasn't working as well. You, you kind of adapted then and got more into weather and aviation. And it sounds like that was a really good fit for you. Definitely. And, you know, you always look back in hindsight, right, and say, well, if I would have known this was going to be my career path, I would have planned it different, differently or I would have double majored or, you know, something like that. Um, because so many times um, I feel like um, the sciences can be really compartment, um, you know, in, a, in their own little bubble. Right. And so, um, you know, with what I've seen with engineering, working in the engineering industry, is that a lot of times they don't think about like the meteorology that goes into it. And that's something that I always feel like I bring into the picture of, well, you know, let's look more at the science. Let's look at like with an extreme rainfall event, um, you know, why did we get that event and how, you know, what's the probability attached to that? How often can we expect something like this? And just even, um, you know, what is the atmosphere capable of, of going to that? Um, so then you kind of bring in this, um, that analysis side of things to the engineering side, where a lot of engineers are just really focused on, you know, I, I have to get my design done, I have to get my permit done, I have to get this project built. And they don't really think about, oh, well, you know, maybe I should make this sewer bigger because, you know, we know that rainfall, at least here in Northeastern Illinois, has been increasing. So, um, and, and then that kind of goes back to the client, climate science part of it. And so, um, so I've been very fortunate to kind of have both of those backgrounds and under, understand, luckily for me, um, having, you know, all the atmospheric fluid dynamic classes 
kind of translated well for um, for learning river hydraulic modeling, those kinds of things. Um, so it was more, you know, taking it from the air to taking it to the ground for me and, you know, figuring out, um, you know, when we get those extreme events, like how that translates to what happens on the ground. How does that affect people? Um, how can we prevent some of those damages? Um, because we really can't, you know, we, there's, we can't control the weather, right? So, you know, we can't stop that rainfall from happening or from falling. But then once it's on the ground, what can we do to prevent the damages or prevent those interruptions that happen um, that we, you know, we see those all over the country with flooding. So, yeah, Chris, I really like with your background in engineering and atmospheric science, you can really look at this holistically to kind of understand. I think I think of climate science as providing this bird's eye view or this context. But then, you know, the beauty of engineering is a lot of times it does get down to very practical things like design and implementing projects to reduce flood risk. You know, it sounds like you kind of have one foot in both camp or at least experience with both of those that you can kind of maybe help bring uh, some different angles to some of these projects that you work on. Definitely. Um, right now, I've been promoting, it's probably been for the past 10 years. Um, I, you know, tell my friends, tell my engineering coworkers when I talk at presentation or at conferences and present, um, you know, I always talk about, let's, let's, like you said, let's zoom out to that bird's eye view and say if you have a storm sewer project that you're working on, you know, let's get that climate change data. What do we think that the rainfall is gonna be here in 25, 50 years? And we already have our design done. So just, you know, make a copy of your, of your project, you know, take that copy, run that bigger rainfall through your project and see how your project reacts to it. So, you know, a lot of times we spend millions of dollars um, building these projects, these stormwater drainage improvement projects, and then they function for a while. And then in 10, 20 years, we have these flooding issues again. And people are saying, well, we just spent all this money 10, 20 years ago, and now we're having the same problem over and over again. And maybe that's because the rainfall is increasing and we didn't account for that in the project. Um, you know, a lot of times our rainfall data that we use in engineering, um, it's outdated. Um, here in Illinois, we just got an update to our design rainfall in 2019. But before that, we were using data from 1989. So a lot has happened from 1989 to 2022 that wasn't in our records uh, and that we were designing for. And we, you know, we really needed that update. You can't just, you know, put it on the shelf for 30 years and, and forget about it. You need to update it every five years or so at least and, and capture those in, in your design. And so, you know, what happened was, you know, things were basically undersized because we had not designed, um, you know, based on 30 year old data. And so we really do need to keep it up to date. And then I really suggest that we look ahead because if that trend continues forward, you know, we're gonna, we expect that storm sewer to be in the ground probably for 50 years. And if it stops functioning in 25 years and we're gonna go spend more money on digging this project up and, and redoing it, you know, we're just, we're just uh, throwing away our money basically. And so if we can, you know, yeah. look at it before we build it and say, okay, maybe this, you know, maybe these, um, you know, pipes right here, we can, you know, make them a little bit bigger and then we won't have this problem in the future. Chris, it seems like a lot of your work from the climate perspective is providing a long-term perspective really of seeing farther out into the future. And maybe this adds a little bit of time and cost to the project now, but it sounds like you could actually save a lot of resources in the long run if you're not blindsided by these changes in precipitation intensities and things like that. Exactly. That's exactly what we're trying to do. You know, inflate between inflation, you know, on building materials and just um, return on investment. We expect the project to last a certain amount of years. Um, and like I said, we're spending these millions of dollars on these projects. We, we really do want them to last and function throughout that expected design life. So we really do need to look at changing our mindset and looking at the projects through the whole design life, not just based on what happened in the past. 
That makes a lot of sense. You're actually helping in the long run save a lot of time and money by being proactive, by having a long-term perspective. You're helping people 30 years from now not be blindsided and say, oh, we didn't see this coming, right? Because you're saying, well, we do see this coming. We see where the, the climate trends are going. Uh, Chris, also really encouraged to see you as a woman working in engineering, working in, in atmospheric science, uh, climate science. I have a daughter of my own. She's very curious. And uh, I get excited to think about the possibilities of the fun things that she could work on one day, you know, um, as she chooses or, you know, whatever professional path she chooses. For you as a woman, do you feel like you faced any professional challenges that perhaps some of your male colleagues would not have faced? Or has that not really come up in your life professionally? No, definitely. Um, so uh, being an engineering and meteorology major, you know, very do male dominated fields. Um, I was probably, you know, one of a handful of women in those in those programs in college. And then going same thing, transitioning into the workforce. Like, you know, I, I was probably the only woman in the office at, at the Chicago um, weather observation office for probably five years or so. Um, and so that does you know, bring a different perspective to your your career. And then um, after I left O'Hare, I ended up in stormwater engineering at, at local government. And that's kind of where I went to the water resources side of my career. And um, luckily there were a lot more women there. Um, but um, when I went into consulting, there, again, I was back to, um, you know, one of a handful of women and, um, you know, I'd show up to meetings sometimes and with clients and, uh, you know, sometimes um, I would get mistaken for like the administrative assistant who was there to take meeting minutes or something. And, and I think that's something that, you know, men don't necessarily have to deal with. No one assumes that just because they're in the room that they're not the technical expert or lead on a project, <laughs> um, you know, and I think that, um, you know, a lot of times um, we don't talk about um, men, about how they're going to juggle career and family. And it's like a topic that's been reserved for women um, where a lot of that um, child care and issue, you know, taking care of those obligations always fall to women. And, you know, recently, my husband, I had some things going on that I couldn't miss at work. And my husband said, well, I'll take, you know, I'll take our son to his doctor's appointment. And I said, okay, great, thanks. And then when he told his manager, he was going to be out of the office for a couple hours that morning, his, his manager said to him, well, why, why can't your wife take care of this? I see what you're saying there. So it's like, well, wait, what, where does that value come in? You know, like what, what's the difference, right? Um, yeah, no, that, that's a really good, really um, good perspective that you're sharing. I appreciate um, understanding this better. And also, I wanted to ask you, when you've been in these situations where you're the only female in the room, do you often feel like a sense of inclusiveness, like like people communicating that they're happy you're there, they're happy to engage with you? Or more often, have you felt almost like standoffish or like, you know, people are, are not as interactive with you or or confirming that they're they're glad you're there to be part of the discussion? I think that's changed a lot recently, probably I'd say in the past five years or so. I think it's definitely more inclusive now than when I started off. I think 20 years ago, I definitely felt the standoffishness, um, some of the exclusion, those kinds of things, um, or just that my ideas didn't carry as, as much merit as, as some of my coworkers who were male, um, you know, and just always feeling like, and I've heard this from other coworkers that are female too, just feeling like you really needed to know what you were talking about before you made a recommendation because you didn't want to be seen as, um, you know, I guess, um, you know, it's hard to describe, but um, maybe feeling more pressure, like you really have to have all your ducks in a row all the time. Like there's no, there's no wiggle room for error because you're maybe under more pressure or scrutiny. Definitely, definitely, yes. Under, under more scrutiny is what I was what I was thinking that I that I didn't have the word for at the time, and and I and I've heard that from other coworkers too. And um, you know, I I see that um, workplaces are now becoming more inclusive to not only women but people of color. And that's another thing in the engineering um, and meteorology fields. It's been um, you know white male dominated for a long time. And I think that you know trying to get women and people of color into those fields um, just from the time trying to recruit them from high school um, you know is something that it's been difficult and having them have some role models or some mentors that have done it um, 
and, and so I think that, you know, that's changing now, but it's, it's been a long time coming and it's been, um, and it's been, you know, something that hasn't changed very, very rapidly in, in, the, um, in engineering or meteorology, I think. So I'm glad to see the changes. I'm glad to see, um, you know, the more, you know, being more inclusive and recognizing that, you know, people's um, experiences from different backgrounds really can contribute in different perspective to projects. And I think that, you know, having people at the table that don't have the same experience as you do is a really great thing. And having their perspective um, can bring a lot of different things to a project. So I'm glad to finally see that happening. Yeah, Chris, I'm glad about that too. And I love what you said about having different kinds of people at the table. You know, at the end of the day, it's not just about checking boxes that we we did requirements. What changed for me, I spent three years of my life living in Africa and quickly living in a cross-cultural environment. You're like, wait, people's perspectives on things are coming from a completely different angle. If you had a mixed team, I mean, and I feel like this with gender, I feel like this with race as well. If your team is very mixed with people from different backgrounds and experiences, the level of creativity and the problem solving angles, I think your team is really going to win in the long run. You know, if you have that more diversity, if your board is all elderly white males, I think you're really in a way shooting yourself in the foot, right? Because you're not getting the diverse viewpoints on, you know, how to problem solve and things like that. So uh, I, I really love what you said there about having a lot of different kinds of people at the table. I think the, the teams that do that are really going to outpace the other teams in the long run. Definitely. I agree. I agree with that um, completely. Yeah, we, we need to have those different perspectives now. We live, I think we live in a different world now than we did 20 years ago when I was getting started. And so, you know, I, I welcome, let's get those different opinions at the table. You know, I love food buffets because we can sample so many different kinds of tasty foods. I feel this podcast episode gave us a really broad taste of science and geographic perspectives from our Guests in the field of earth and ocean science, Marta, Sarah, and Christina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The passion that each of you has for science and discovery is contagious, and I feel like we got into some really great details about what you do and the background on how you got interested in these areas of science. The work that the three of you do is so applied and practical, from monitoring and forecasting changes in rising sea levels to rescuing stranded marine mammals, to implementing improved infrastructure design that consider a changing climate, the type of work the three of you do will have major positive impacts in our world. I trust these types of stories will also inspire girls out there who have a passion for exploration and discovery and need to hear that they have every opportunity to pursue a career in the sciences. Please join our post-podcast discussion on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. That's the place where we dialogue about these topics and share insights that we've learned from each episode. If you have an idea for a future podcast episode, please reach out to us. We'd love to make our podcast as relevant as possible as we travel the world together. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal Needham signing off until the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek The Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.